0: Brothers and sisters, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 18 through 27, Joel chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. And once you've found your place in the scripture, please stand to your feet as we read God's word. God's word says this, then the Lord became jealous for his land and spared his people. The Lord answered his people, look, I am about to send you grain, new wine, and fresh oil. You will be satiated with them, and I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. I will drive the northerner far from you and banish him to a dry and desolate land, his front ranks into the Dead Sea and his rear guard into the Mediterranean Sea, his stench Will rise. Yes, his rotten smell will rise, for he has done astonishing things. Don't be afraid, land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done astonishing things. Don't be afraid, wild animals, for the wilderness pastures have turned green, and the trees bear their fruit, and the fig tree and grapevine yield their riches. Children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God, because he gives you the autumn rain for your vindication. He sends showers for you, both autumn and spring rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and fresh oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate, the young locust, the destroying locust, and the devouring locust, my great army that I sent against you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. You will know that I am present in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. What a powerful word it is this morning to receive from you from this prophecy of Joel. I pray that you would open our minds to understand it that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the Word and interpret it for us. God, I pray that it would fall upon the dead hearts and that your Word would revive those who do not know you and bring them to life, that they might call upon Christ as Savior. Lord, as all Scripture is relevant to Christ, Lord, it specifically speaks about him in many different ways, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. We want to hear of Christ. We want to meet our Savior in the text today. So I pray that you would show us him as we see how you relate to Israel. Father God, we bless your name. We rejoice in who you are. And as our brother already prayed, God, forgive us for rejoicing in things that you make when those things replace you, God, and you are not our highest joy. God, we have sinned against you and exalted your blessings to a higher status than they should be. Nevertheless, God, we can rejoice in the things that you give us, the things that you bless us with, but ultimately, Lord, that should cause us to rejoice in you. And I pray that we would learn that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters and guests, please please seated at this point. The sermon is titled, Humanity's Restoration. Humanity's Restoration. We're looking at the teeming of Judah. This is part two of a sermon that I started a little while ago if you've ever seen my backyard you'll know that we have quite a few fruit trees when we first bought our home uh, back in 1999 the backyard was nothing but dirt but over the years we have planted apricot trees nectarine trees a plum tree an apple tree a couple of pear trees a peach tree an orange tree a persimmons tree uh, we've planted lemon trees uh, we even have a pomegranate bush that we shaped into a tree Um, it's supposed to be a bush but we just clipped away at it and now it looks like a tree it's really fun to watch these trees flower and to produce fruit each year and for the most part we'll eat a little bit of the fruit not much but we'll leave the rest for the birds and the squirrels that's one way that uh, we choose to care for God's creation and provide for those little creatures this year though our fruit trees seem to produce more than ever and we even brought some down to the church because we had a ton of fruit Uh, some people even came over and picked some of the fruit and took some home. And depending on what time of the year it was or is, uh, different trees were producing different fruit at different times. Not too long ago, my wife plucked, plucked a ton of pomegranates and, uh, off of our tree. and These things were huge. And uh, there was an apple tree that we have. Uh, we just planted a little while ago, maybe a year and a half ago or so. It produced some of the biggest apples that, that I've ever seen. This year, our peach tree and our nectarine trees were so juicy that when you bit into them, if you didn't if you weren't careful, juice would just start running down your face like it was like just a sloppy, juicy, good mess to yes, bite into right <laughs> You had some brother, like you had to have a napkin like it was dangerous I I'd never had such a juicy piece of fruit, but it's always fun uh, for me to watch people get fruit off of our tree our Our apricot tree produces thousands it's just ridiculous, and I'm always reminded of God. And his provision that he provides for us when I see these trees. They're just a general reminder and a specific reminder of God's goodness. It reminds me of his creativity. It reminds me of his marvelous creation. I love having these trees in my life. They preach God's glory to me. And they speak of God's love for his creation and humanity. Over the years, though, we've lost some trees. Our cherry trees always die. They never make it. I've never even seen a cherry be produced off of one of them. Our fig tree never made it, which is a bummer because I need fig leaves to cover myself from my sin, all right? And a shame before God, all <laughs> right? So I have to wear this instead, all right? We, we, even, we even tried an avocado tree once, but it, it didn't withstand the cold. Sometimes the demise of our trees is due, was due to weather. Sometimes they died due to issues with the soil. Most recently, a, a pear tree died due to a fungus that was on it. It was turning all the leaves black. <laughs> Some type of blight or something like that. And it's a bummer when a tree dies. And, uh, but what a blessing it is when they thrive and when they teem with fruit. Because it reminds me of the life yet to come for Christians. The new creation will teem like never before. Unfortunately for us, we get so often caught up in the fallenness of this world, its brokenness, its corruption, its problems, that we forget to keep our eyes on what God is going to do for us. And what he's going to do for us is as good as done. What he's going to do for us is as good as done. This morning in Joel, we see what God is going to do for Judah. It's as good as done, what he's going to do. He's going to restore the years of devastation and judgment that they have experienced He's going to replenish the land of Judah. He's going to revive the land with rain, as we read. And Judah's response will be that of abundant worship and joy and gratitude in God. They will be teeming with joy as God causes the land to teem with produce. Grain and wine and oil are coming back from God and Judah will rejoice in God. And this is meant to show us Grace and salvation. As I mentioned in my prayer, all scripture is about Christ. He says so himself. This is meant to remind us of grace and salvation. And I showed before from Hebrews, because I've been in the book of Joel for a while, and so if you're visiting with us, this might feel new to you, but I I showed from the book of Hebrews how the, the land of rest that God gave to Israel, their promised land, it was meant to take our minds Backwards to the Garden of Eden when everything was flourishing before sin came in. Okay? As Adam was the son of God, Israel's the son of God. As Adam was given a garden to tend and told to expand, the same is true with Israel. They were given a special land in which things would bloom. And it was to remind them of the paradise that was lost, but it was also there to remind them, according to Hebrews, of the paradise to come. A lot of people are under the impression that we are going to live in heaven in a spiritual sense Forever. But scripture shows us that that is just a temporary place. The new heaven, or there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and the two will meet, and we will live on a revived planet, on a regenerated planet. As we have resurrection bodies, so the world will be resurrected, so to speak, okay? And we will have a planet to live on with no sin, no evil, just thriving and teeming. And so what we see here happening in Judah as God revives, it is meant to point us to a bunch of things that are related to Christ. But what God is going to do, it's as good as done, just as our promise of a new creation is as good as done if we are Christians, if we are in Christ. And for that, we must rejoice in our Lord. That is where Joel is taking us today, okay? We continue on with what we started to look at a few weeks ago. I was supposed to preach this sermon last week, but I got COVID for the second time and I'll tell you what, the first time I thought, oh, this is a breeze. It was just like a little bit of sniffles, a little bit of a cough, a one day of body aches. For whatever reason, this next round that hit me wiped me out. I was sleeping 16 hours a day. I was not teeming. Finally, at the end of it all, when I had a day of strength, I'm like, thank you, God, for reviving me. It was, it was a mess, and so that's why I wasn't here last week, and I thank those of you that prayed for me and called me and left food on my porch and rang the doorbell and then left. That was really cool, and uh, just uh, if that ever happens again, a word of advice, don't put the food right up against the security door because you can't open the door to get it without knocking everything over, all right? But uh, I appreciate it and love you guys for that, so thank you. The last time we looked at Joel, we began to see that God answered the prayers of the inhabitants. God had called everyone to assemble and to uh, assemble before the temple, before God, because that is his palace, so to speak, all right? Um, assemble before the temple, and they were to seek his mercy and ask for his forgiveness Because they had sinned greatly against God. We just don't know what their sin was. But they had broken covenant with God. God had brought discipline upon their land, and so He had punished them severely. He sent a locust invasion to strip their land of all its blessing. Grain is gone, fruit is gone, He sent a drought as well. The people and the animals are suffering but the people are so stupid, they're so torpid, they're so spiritually lethargic and unaware of what's going on that they don't recognize that this is all from God. They just think it's, it's just a recession. It's just bad times. And so God calls them to wake up, wake up from their torpidity and see the devastation that the land has. See that it, it is judgment from God and see that they have broken covenant with God. And God calls this judgment upon them the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And we God warns that the day of the Lord is still coming. They're in it, and it is coming. And then we're gonna see later in Joel, there's more warnings of a day of the Lord, all right? There's multiple days of the Lord in scripture with the final day of the Lord when Christ comes again. And the day of the Lord is both a salvation event and a judgment event. For those believers or those who love Christ, it is a day of salvation. For those that don't know Christ, it is a day of judgment. But that day is coming, and we see many days have come that were called the days of the Lord. But through the prophet Joel, God reminds the people, he reminds them that he's compassionate and he's forgiving. He's willing to leave a blessing for the people if they would repent and turn back to him. And so God has heard their prayer. They have prayed and sought God's forgiveness, and God is promising to restore and to bless the land in our passage today. And that's what we began to look. That's what we began to look at last time, and we began to see that in this passage of scripture, there's a particular structure that the prophet is using. You have to remember that this is Hebrew poetry, and there's many different uh, uses uh, of different techniques in this scripture to help emphasize. And point towards certain things. In English, we might not see them, but I'm going to help point them out to you. The first thing that we were looking at was a chiastic structure. I'm going to put a a slide up on the screen, or our technicians will. And again, this this sermon isn't meant to be a lecture in Hebrew poetry, but I only want to point out as much as is necessary so that you will get the point that God is trying to communicate. Okay? So hopefully this doesn't overwhelm you. It's not meant to be like a scholastic lecture. It really is meant to point to Christ and we will get there. Now I want you to think of a chiasm as two staircases that ascend and they unite together at the top. That should be on the screen. It is. Okay. And so what you're looking at is a, a piece of scripture where the beginning of the scripture and the end of the scripture parallel. And then as you keep reading, you see that the next part parallels the second to the last parallel part, so on and so forth. It's it's like a bookcase, or it's like a book if you opened up with the centerpiece, but everything is mirroring or a staircase. And then the center point is the focus of it all. And so the prophet is using this chiastic structure, this technique to help people get to a central point that he wants them to focus on. And we've been ascending this chiastic structure. We went through three points last time. We're going to go through the final three today. Make sense so far? This, this literary structure, okay? Now, I have to tell you, I thought I was crazy when I thought that there was a chiastic structure in this passage. Sometimes I'm like, oh, mm -hmm, what do you think? And I went to 14 different commentaries on the book of Joel. None of them mentioned a chiastic structure. So I'm like, then I'm a heretic, all right? I, I, I certainly am a heretic. I see something that's not in scripture. But I was convinced that there was a chiastic structure. What I thought was interesting is I found one commentary where the author said, hey, verse 18 and 27, they're saying the same thing. I'm like, that's what I think, All right? And then some else, someone else said 19 and 26 are matching. I'm like, I thought that too, All right? And then someone else said verse 20 and 25 are marrying. I'm like, ha, ha. They just don't see that there's a chiastic structure, all right? So I'm rolling with it. I could be wrong, but this is what it appears to me, all right? I thought they were each identifying separate parts of this chiastic ascending structure. So we're going to roll with it. I'm going to repeat the first three points that we went through last time and just give a brief summary for those of you that weren't here so you can see how this is ascending, okay? Point one, we saw how verses 18 and 27 matched up. And the main point of this text was that the Lord's jealousy... Will result in Judah's teeming. The Lord's jealousy will result in Judah's teeming. Let me explain. In verse 18, we saw that God was jealous for his land and for his people. It's like a husband who has their wife mistreated by another person. That is going to arouse that man's jealousy where he stands up to defend his wife and his own honor. And the nations have been mocking Judah. Look at your land. It's devastated. The locusts have come. There's no rain. Where is your God? And so they're being ridiculed. This arouses God's jealousy to see his people mocked, even though they deserve the punishment they got for their sin. But it arouses his jealousy. Yahweh will rise to defend Judah and the land and his name from such mockery. And so the nations are asking, where is your God? And so God arises. And he's, scripture says he's going to spare them. From what? From further devastation and further mockery. How do we know? How do we know? Well, in verse 18, it's, it's just understood that this embarrassment and shame are part of what they'll be spared because verse 17 explains the shame and the mockery that they're enduring. So verse 17 and 18, 17 tells us they're enduring all this mockery and shame. And then verse 18 says, God is uh, aroused in his jealousy and in his anger, okay? So they are his people, and they will be spared of shame. They are his people. This is his land. They'll be spared of shame. And it matches verse 27, where God states that he is present in Israel, okay? That he is present in the land. And so we see this, this imagery of God loving his people in his land, which is paralleled Verse 18 all the way to 27, okay? So he's the God of Israel. He is their God. And in verse 27, we see that he will spare them shame and disgrace, that they will never be put to shame again. And so the ideas are there. That's the first step of this chiasm. Again, the Lord's jealousy, his presence in Israel ensures that Judah will soon team with life. His jealousy is going to take care of that. And aren't you glad that the same realities hold true for New Covenant believers, for New Covenant Christians? His jealousy is for us, and and he is among us. And we can team now with life in greater proportion, and we will team in greater life when Christ comes again. So we see the Lord's jealousy will result in Judas teaming, verses 18 and 27. Second point, we saw that the Lord's removal of shame will result in Judah's teeming. The Lord's removal of shame will result in Judah flourishing and teeming, all right? That was verses 19, and then at the end of the chiasm in verse 26. In verse 19, all right, shows us that God is going to replenish the land so that they will be satiated and full, He's going to replenish the land so that they'll be satiated and full. That means that they will no longer be a disgrace among the nations. Because right now, they're not satiated. They're not full. The land is stripped and barren and destitute. Again, this reinforces the idea that they will be spared devastation. No more shame, as we talked about in the first step of the chiasm, right? So verse 19 matches up perfectly with verse 26, where Scripture says they will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. We see satiated in verse 19, they're going to be satisfied in verse 26 and never again be put to shame. Now I have to tell you that Joel is a master of poetry. I have to show you that not only is there a parallel at the beginning and the end, and in the second step, and the second step from the end, all right, but there's more than those parallels. Verses 18 and 19 are actually parallels as are verse 26 and 27. Because in verses 26 and 27, it is repeated that my people will never again be put to shame. And he says it again in verse 27. My people will never again be put to shame. And so what you have here is you have a dual set of parallels. The outer parts of this passage of Scripture paralleling, the second points paralleling, but you also have parallels in the first two points and parallels in the last two points. Make sense? So there are multiple layers in which Joel... For our joy and for Israel's joy, he's trying to repeat things and stress them in a certain way that if you know poetry in Hebrew, you're like, dude is hitting on this hard. He's hitting it over and over again. He wants us to get something, okay? They're not just cool techniques. So you have this double set of parallels. My people will never again be put to shame. shame. Now, when it comes to the church, God's new covenant people, both the Apostle Paul, so here's what I'm doing. I'm showing you what, how God treats Israel, right? The nature of God in and, and reviving and restoring and refreshing people and showing grace and kindness to them. But we are new covenant people, so we're making the leap from Israel all the way to God's people, the church, which consists of believing Israelites and Gentiles, okay? There, there is continuity, even though we're in different covenants, different testaments, okay? Okay? In the New Testament, both Paul and Peter show uh, what it means to be part of Christ. And they both say that we will never again be put to shame. One cites Isaiah 28.6, okay? <clears throat> and scripture shows us that the Lord has removed our sin, has removed our shame. And because of that, future blessing is coming. The mockery of unbelievers in this world will be silenced. That's what God was doing with Judah, silencing unbelievers, defending his honor, defending his name. And the New Testament makes it clear that God will do the same. Though people mock now, we will never again be put to shame. There is coming a day when Christians will be vindicated. When everyone that said, you guys are stupid, you don't know what you believe, you're superstitious, your God is not, your God is not present, you, you prayed and stuff didn't happen. When all the mockery is, is met with God's justice, people will be silenced. And God's people will be vindicated. And no one will ever make fun of us again. That's amazing to think about. The vindication is coming that God will show that we were right to trust in Christ as Savior. God is with us. He dwells with us just as he did with Israel. But let's move on to the third step of the chiasm, and we'll get to our text today. We see, first of all, the Lord's jealousy, it results in his teeming for Judah. The Lord's removal of shame will result in Judah flourishing and teeming. The Lord's judgment will also result in Judah's teeming. In verse 20, we see a judgment coming from God. God uses a metaphor to say that he's going to drive the locusts away from Judah. And this metaphor is a phrase called the northerner. This word northerner indicates that the locusts were an army because typically for Israel, invasions came from the north. Armies came from the north and invaded them and would strip their land and would harm them and would leave them destitute. And so God is using this locust to do the same thing and so he calls them the northerner that that's god's army that he sent to attack to one side of judah is the dead sea to the other side is the mediterranean sea to the south of judah is desert and so armies typically come from the north god's army and god is saying this was my judgment i stripped your land of this so what is god going to do with the northerner this locust army he's going to send them into the seas to die And their stench will rise. Send them to the east, send them to the west, not back to the north, all right? It's going to send them to the south where they'll die in a desert, in a desolate wasteland. So get what God is doing. Judah, right now, their land is desolate and stripped bare. That's the punishment they got. God is going to reverse things. And now what the locusts caused for Judah, that is going to be their fate, They are going to be sent to a dry and desolate land to die. They will be sent into the seas to die. In a twist of fate, that's what's happening, okay? Driven away. So this northerner being driven away, we see in verse 20, it is paired up with verse 25 where we see that the Lord is going to restore Judah and all that the locust army destroyed. So verse 20, the northerner, God's going to take care of him. Verse 25, God's going to deal with the locusts. So we see the matching ascending staircase. The parallels are found, all right? And so the death of this army in verse 20 means that devastation will no longer happen in verse 25 and blessing will be allowed to return to the land since there's no more locusts. Now we move on to where we're at today, okay? Point four, the Lord's restoration will result in the land teeming with Judah, The Lord restoring the land for Judah and causing things to flourish will result in the land teeming with joy, in the land rejoicing. We're going to see that parallel in verse 21 and then in verse 24. 21 and 24 as we ascend the chiasm, okay? Before we move on to this chiasm, I want to show you another connection, okay? Remember how there were dual parallels in verses 18 and 19. Dual parallels in verses 26 and 27. Okay? There are other parallels as well. At the end of Scripture, we see they're not going to be put to shame. Verse 26, verse 27, they're not going to be put to shame. Well, in verses in 20 and 21, verses in 20 and 21, there's another double parallel. Okay? Last time we looked at the northerner that God's going to drive away, God says they have done astonishing things. The astonishing things that the locusts or the northerner have done is they have completely stripped the land bare for Israel. They have nothing to eat. The granaries and the storehouses are torn down. The animals are groaning out to God in pain. The northerner has done great things in verse 20. When you go to verse 21, you see that it is God, it is Yahweh who has done great things. And so that phrase that he has done astonishing things in those verses is meant to contrast the difference between what the northerner has done and then the next verse, well, let me tell you what God has done. Are, are you with me? Like Joel is just contrasting and double-paralleling. It's, it's a marvelous passage of Scripture. Okay, so we see those, that phrase repeated twice. The two different groups of people have done astonishing things. The first one is the northerner, the second one is God. The locust brought destruction, God has, God has brought revitalization. Now, all right, what a masterful poet Joel is, and he doesn't want you to miss out on what God is doing. Had you been in Judah, and you're like, yeah, the northerner, the locust, they have ruined and made life miserable, and you're feeling it for a long time. Because if you're in a culture of agriculture and your crops are destroyed, it's not like you can just go to the supermarket and get more food. They're they're stuck in a crisis for a long period of time. And their warehouses and storehouses, are. it's a bleak situation too. Now all of a sudden they hear God has done great things. And so they should be paying attention. What is it that God has done? Because if they don't see it, if they miss it, They will continue to mourn and to weep. And they will continue to feel the shame of their sin. But now, in repentance, the time for rejoicing has come. The time for rejoicing has come. So Joel is using poetry and repetition and parallels to draw this out, to shove it in their face. And we need to see it as well. Okay? Let's look at verse 21. Look at what it says. It says, don't be afraid, land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done astonishing things. What's interesting is that the Lord hasn't done anything yet. All he's done is make promises to do things. It takes time for a devastated land to heal and produce all the blessings that God has just promised. As of now, all God has done is made a promise. Are you with me so far? But how is the prophet speaking? He's speaking in past tense. The Lord has done astonishing things. What an amazing way to put things. I'm going to put a phrase up on the screen for you. Because the prophet is using something called the prophetic perfect tense. Again, I don't want this to be a lecture on, a, on a Greek poetry, per se, but there are certain things that we have to understand about this to get what Joel is doing, okay? This is a way that prophets speak sometimes about future events. They are so certain that these events are going to happen that they refer to them as having had happened. It's literally what had happened, What had happened was God did some great things. What had happened? Okay? That's the prophetic perfect tense. God is about to send grain. He's about to send wine. He's about to send oil. God is going to make sure that they are no longer disgraced among the nations. He's going to drive away the northerner, future promises. But Joel writes and speaks as if God's promises are already fulfilled. In other words, it's as good as done. And that is why God is telling the land to rejoice. The land was to rejoice and be glad. God has done great things. The land could be happy. The Lord's land would be spared, not just the inhabitants. Notice that the astonishing deeds of God (coughs) in verse 21 are mentioned in verse 24, which is the other half of this step of the chiasm. Verse 24, if you read previously in Joel, you'll see that the granaries and the storehouses are falling apart and in disrepair, and they are empty. There are no backup supplies. That's the great things that the northerner has done. They've left everything desolate, okay? But in verse 25, so get this contrasting image, says that the threshing floors will be full of grain. They're they're not full of grain, Great things have been done because of and great devastations happened because of the northerner. God has done great things. In other words, the threshing floors will be full, the vats will overflow with new wine and fresh oil. That is what God is going to do for, for those in Judah. And for Joel, it's as good as done. Do you see the contrast? Like there, I am in utter, I'm in utter brokenness. You're telling me that things are gonna overflow? There's nothing here, and you're telling me that it's going to be so full that things are just spilling over? That's great things that God has done. After harvesting grain, let me tell you what a threshing floor is. After harvesting grain, the the grain is tied together in bundles and stalks, and it's left out to dry and become brittle. Once they're dried, they're taken to the threshing floor, these bundles of grain. The threshing floor is the place where grain is beaten or threshed, so that the dry straw and the grain and, or barley, they begin to separate from one another. Once beaten, the straw needs to be separated, though, from the barley grains. So what they do is they take the whole mess of, of straw and grain, they throw it up into the air, and the wind blows away the chaff or the dried and broken up straw. And it blows it away, and the heavy grain and, and wheat falls to the ground. Okay, so that's the process of threshing, right? In verse 24, we read that the threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats or the containers that hold wine will be overflowing. It's a stark contrast from what we read earlier. We read again that the granaries are just in utter disrepair. The people had no joy. You guys remember the Great Recession? Right? That that, that time stunk. Stunk. What we're going through now with the great inflation, right? It stinks. It's, everything's expensive, right? It's just, it's just, it's not a joyful time sometimes for some people. Of course, it's not as bad as what we read here, but we're trying to at least get you to understand the humanity of what's going on here. The animals are groaning in starvation because of the locusts and the drought. The locusts had done great things, but God has done great things. He will do great things. From emptiness to fullness to overflowing in abundance from God. That's what repentance brings to these sinners' life. They will have food again. They will again have crops That are necessary in order to give thank offerings to God, because right now not only are they broke, but they have nothing to give to God to say, "God, thank you for being good to us and blessing us." They have nothing to participate in their grain offerings and their drink offerings, which was part of their spiritual life. And by God taking it all away from them, now they have nothing to give to them, to give to God, and they're supposed to realize, according to the covenant and the contract that God made. If you're walking with me, Israel, you will have plenty and an abundance, and your land will overflow. If you turn away from me, I will strike your land with disease, and I will strip it all away from you. So they are to realize, based on their poverty, that they have turned away from God, because God doesn't lie. If they're faithful to him, they'll be blessed, but now they've turned back, so God has promised It will become a garden again, like it was intended to be, a land of rest, a garden that is pointing back to creation and pointing forward to the eternal state. This is what Judah can expect. But what about us? What about God's new covenant people? What can we expect? Is there a flourishing land for us? Has the Lord done great things for us in Christ? Isaiah 65. Look on the screen says this in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. You see, Israel was promised a new heavens and a new earth. God made that promise to them. That promise now extends to us because we have been grafted into believing Israel. That new covenant that was promised to them, it extends to Gentiles or non-Jews who believe that Christ is the Savior. Thus, we get the promise of a new creation and a new heaven, a new land. This land, this earth that we are in does not flourish like God intended it to because of the curse of sin. Second Peter 3 says this, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be In lives of holiness and godliness. Waiting for the hastening and the coming of the day of God. There's that day of the Lord that is coming. Because of which that coming, the heavens and the earth will be set on fire and dissolved. And heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you see what Joel is pointing towards? That temporal reality that we're experiencing is pointing towards the eternal reality that we are going to experience. And do you ever look at creation and you're sad because it's not the way it's supposed to be? We see floods and we see fires. We see earthquakes and mudslides and pollution and litter and smog everywhere. And that's just in your backyard, right? (laughs) We see tornadoes and hurricanes and devastation. Do you ever think to yourself, this planet suffers because of us? because of our sin, like Judah's land was suffering because of their sin. Sin. Someone recently said to me, we did this, and they were right. We did this. We ruined creation with our sin. God brought the curse and the judgment upon us because of our sin. Creation suffers because of Adam's sin and our sin. But let me tell you something. We're here for good news today. Right now we can say to the land, do not be afraid, earth. Rejoice and be glad, earth, for the Lord has done astonishing things. It's as good as done, creation. You will be healed and restored. Creation, you will flourish. Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the tomb ensures that you will be made new too. In Revelation 21.1, John saw a new heaven and a new earth that God had made. You see, creation longs, creation longs to see God's people, the church, Creation longs to see them renewed and glorified and transformed and resurrected with new life. Why? Because right now, creation is groaning. And it longs for the day that it is set free from bondage and corruption, according to Romans 8. It wants to be set free from the bondage and corruption that it experiences because of the sin that we have brought into this place. But the good news is that the celebration doesn't just stop with the land. The earth can rejoice and be glad because God is going to do great things. It's not just Judah's land that is commanded not to be afraid, all right, and to rejoice and to be glad. But it is our land as well, our dwelling place, our earth that God has given us. And so as we Ascend is chiasm, We see the next thing that is to rejoice and commanded not to fear is our animals. Before we move to the next step, I want you to see what the prophet is doing, though, in verses 21, 22, and 23. I want you to see that there, I want you to see this ascension. We see an ascension in who or what is being addressed. There's an escalation. In verse 21, it's the land, right? We see verse 21, the land being called to stop being afraid and to rejoice. In verse 22, it moves from the land to what? If you're looking at the text, the animals, right? They're no longer to be afraid. In verse 22, we see that it ascends further to who? The children of Zion. So there's an escalation, this ascending staircase. They're the ones who are to rejoice and be glad. And so there's this gradual ascension that I want you to see. The lowest rung of the ladder is the ground, and then the animals, and then finally to the humans and Judah, a progression all commanded to be doing similar things because of the great deeds that God has done. One thing is for certain, though, from these verses. The Lord's restoration results in Judah's land teeming with fruit and blessing, and therefore they are to rejoice and teem with joy. All fear will be vanquished. Verse uh, 22, we see point five, that the Lord's restoration will result in the livestock teeming with joy. Point four was the Lord's restoration will result in the land teeming with joy. Now we see that the Lord's restoration will result in the livestock teeming with joy. We see that in verses 20 through, uh, 22 and the second part of verse 23. In verse 22, there's a command for the animals to not be afraid. Why? Because blessing on the land is as good as done. The Lord has done great things. And in this verse, the prophet writes again as if these things have already happened. He says that the wilderness pastures have turned green. The trees bear fruit. The fig tree and the grapevine yield its fullness. He's speaking as if it's all done already, even though later he says that that's coming. Okay, He's speaking in the prophetic perfect tense. Everything the locusts have devoured and the drought has destroyed will be, be, be replenished. The events again are treated as if they actually happened, even though they have not. This prophetic perfect tense is in view here. It's so certain that past tense words are used to describe future events. The animals indeed now have reason to be encouraged and to not fear. They have cried out to God and moaned to God, we are hungry. And God says, do not be afraid anymore. In the chiasm in verse 22, it is paired up nicely with the second half of verse 23. The reason that the pastures will turn green and that the trees will bear fruit and the fig tree and the grapevines will yield in fullness is because God has already sent rain. He sent rain. The drought is over. Verse 22 speaks of rain, 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 rain. What's interesting in this poetry is that Joel gives this fourfold mention of rain, which I think is paralleled nicely with the fourfold mention of locusts in verse 25, which we already talked about. It's as if God is saying, I'm sending rain, 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 rain to replenish what the locusts, 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 locusts have ruined. Rain has come and more is coming. Do you see see how Joel is is just taking this text and these words and all these literary devices and just hammering home what God is doing? In verse 23, it is God who gives the early rain for Judah's vindication. What a beautiful passage of scripture. It's a squirrely phrase though, okay? This likely has two meanings. And perhaps the prophet Joel is using both meanings to communicate a fullness. He could have used words that just meant one thing and one thing only, and he can or he can use phrases like, hmm, it could mean this or it could mean that. Oh, both are good things. The, Joel is amazing, okay? It seems to me that the spirit inspired Joel to write this on purpose so that we can get a fullness of what God is doing. So let me tell you the two phrases. I'll put them up on the screen for you, how this phrase can be translated. Number one, God has given rain for Judah's vindication, but it could also mean that God has given the teacher of righteousness. Two seemingly different phrases, and I'll explain what each of them means. All right? Number one, what is Joel saying? He's saying that God is sending rain, 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 to vindicate you. Vindication is when someone is proven right when everyone else says that they were wrong. Does that make sense? Okay. In this case, Judah has sinned against God, but Yahweh is still their God. The nations are mocking them. It appears to them, based on what the nations are saying, that that Judah's God, Yahweh, is not all-powerful, he can't deal with the locusts. Where is your God? He can't send rain. Where is your God? He's not with them. He's not present with them in power. And it appears that Judah is serving the wrong God according to the nations, right? No, Yahweh's the right God. You guys are wrong. Where is your God? Look at look how things are. Judah appeared to be wrong in their choice of gods according to the nations. They're idiots, they're foolish. Well, it seems that the world the world, or the nations were the smart ones. That's what's going on. Here, God is going to vindicate Judah, prove that they are right by sending rain in order to prove the nations wrong. I send the rain for your vindication. God is able to drive off the locusts. He's able to send rain. Judah was right about God, even though they had sinned against him. And so that is one meaning of this phrase here, that God has given rain for Judah's vindication. God sent the autumn rain the early rain, for their vindication, God heard their repentant prayers. It is the nations that were wrong. The other way that this phrase can be translated is that God has given the teacher of righteousness. If this is the case, then the rain is the teacher. As God sends his rain, it it is there to teach that their righteousness is rewarded. That their faithfulness to God is rewarded. The covenant faithfulness to God yields blessings. That is part of the Mosaic covenant. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he made a covenant with them. And he says, the land that I'm going to give you, it will flourish when you are faithful to me. And it will be a land of devastation when you are unfaithful to me. And so as the rain comes, it's teaching them, oh yeah, it is a good thing to be in righteous relationship with God. Okay, so that is the other way that this phrase can be translated. And it's likely that Joel is using these words to communicate both of those things. And as you can see in verse 23, again, there's a fourfold mention of rain. Let's just tackle that real quick. God says early rain for vindication. Then he sends showers, which is another word for rain. And then he sends the early rain and then the latter rain. And there's three different uses of words here in regards to rain when one of them is repeated, okay? But let me address this phrase real quick. The phrase, the autumn rain and the spring rain. Or in some of your Bible translations, it'll say the early rain and then the latter rain. That is a merism, okay? M-E-R-I-S-M. The merism, I think I put the definition up there too, It's a use of two contrasting words to designate the whole, to designate completeness or totality. You're like, what does that mean, okay? If you lost something and you you looked for it for a long time, you might say, I looked all day and all night. You're trying to express the whole day you were looking for it, right? If you say, I searched high and I searched low. It's not like you literally got up on a ladder and checked the ceiling and then you got a shovel and dug under your house if you were looking for something. You're trying to express, I, I looked everywhere. Okay? It's like, when, um, it's like when Scripture says that the Lord is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, the first and the last and everything in between. With all those letters, you can make an infinite number of possibilities. God is, is that vast. Or when you say it from A to Z, Okay, that's what a merism is. It's when you intend to communicate fullness by using two contrasting and opposite things. As God has, uh, how far has God removed our sins? As far as the east is from the west, right? That's a merism, right? So from autumn rain to spring rain, it's a merism that includes all rains in between. Fullness, God's refreshing and restoration will be complete, Judah will not be lacking whatsoever in any way. They will get all the rain they need for all their food. They will have all the rain they need to produce enough crops that they will have feasts and thank offerings to give to God. Everything's going to be restored to fullness. Their worship of God will resume. And that's why in verse 22, we can see that the green pastures are fruitful and they're producing fruit and they yield its fullness. It's as good as done. God has promised full rain, everything they need for things to go amazing. He started the rains, the showers, early, autumn rain, everything in between. And that's why the animals should not be afraid. There'll be grass for cattle to eat and sheep to eat. There will be plenty. There's no reason to be afraid, only reason to rejoice. Animals are part of God's creation. Christ died to not just save us, But to restore all of creation. The animals in Judah suffered because of Judah's sin, just like the wildlife today suffers under the curse of Adam's sin and our continued sin. But Isaiah 65 speaks of the new creation. In verse 25, it says that the wolf and the lamb will graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. For one, Animals in the new creation won't be killing each other. I, for one, love meat. I really do. Eating meat, though, is a result of the fall. Did you ever stop to think about that? Even our beloved Savior ate fish. Our rebellion to God has brought a curse upon this planet that eventually brought about Animals eating other animals and us eating meat. When the root of Jesse comes, when Jesus comes, righteousness will rule over creation. Peace will rule over creation. When Jesus comes to make all things new, and that includes animal life, this too, brothers and sisters, is as good as done. The animals can rejoice in God, their creator. Your creator is coming, creatures, Animal life, your Savior is coming. Now, I know, I don't know, I should say, if our little pets will be resurrected. There will, Scripture says there will be no marriage in heaven. So my, my wife and I, though we're believers in Christ, we won't be married in new creation. I would hate to see what it would look like for us to fight over our little Bruno and Callie who passed away <laughs> last year. I'm like, that's my dog. No, that's mine. I, I, I fed him while we were on earth, all right? Who I don't know that that's going to happen. Resurrection, scripture doesn't address it, but there will be wildlife in this new earth. This wildlife, it will exist for our enjoyment and for God's glory. They don't have to fear anymore because of drought or lack of vegetation. They don't have to worry that someone like us is going to come hunting them, right? Deer don't have to worry that lions are going to attack them and kill them and crush them and eat them. Pastor Steve, is he here today? Now, he likes to imagine that uh, and maybe we'll see apple trees, but we'll also see steak trees. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. But I know that animal life will not imagine. I'll take a ribeye. All right. Uh, animal life will no longer suffer the sting of death and sin. Again, last year, our family lost both of our dogs last year. They were the best dogs we ever had, the only two dogs that we ever had that basically lived the full term of their life, but they both got really ill. We had to euthanize them both. Each time, my wife and I, we knelt on the floor of that veterinary hospital, and we hugged and we kissed our dogs, and we said goodbye to them, and each time I prayed with overwhelming tears, thank you, God, for giving us your creation to care for. Thank you for letting us be little stewards of your little creatures that you made that you love. And during that prayer, I I pray that we honored you and that we took good care of them. Thank you for the fun times we had with them. Thank you for the joy they brought us. We we know that all death in our prayer, I said, is a result of Adam's sin and our sin. And I thank you that Christ died and rose again, not to just save us, but to restore creation. And we look forward to that. For now... I, we pray comfort our hearts as we say goodbye to our pets. If you've ever had to put a pet down, you know that while they're, you don't love them as much as your kids, it, it's, it stings. Well, some of you love them more, all right? But <laughs> you, you, you know it when, when that animal has protected you and barked and scared off strangers, has kept your feet warm at night, has chased the, the same boring stick that you've thrown over and over again, Right, has just smiled every time you came home, no matter how long you left them alone. All right, if you took good care of your pets and they loved you, you know how hard it is to say goodbye. The animals in Judah are moaning and groaning because of sin, and God promises restoration. Do not fear any more animals. I long for a day when even creatures can rejoice and be happy in God, not just the land, not creatures, only those as well. But this leads to the high point of the chiasm. In verse 23, we see the high point. Before I move on, let me just say that th- death has filled this earth. Eternal life will one day fill this earth. It started with spiritual life now that we believe in Christ. We're new on the inside, waiting in outer newness. But the animals again can rejoice. All right? He closed not just the grass of the field. Scripture says also his eyes on the sparrow. So if you think I'm foolish for saying that God loves his creatures, you're wrong. God does care for his creatures. They glorify him so much. They're the only creatures that don't disobey him. We do. And yet they suffer the curse of our sin, just like we see in Judah. Fear not. Fear not animals. Your Savior is coming. Lastly, we see the Lord's restoration will result in Judah's teeming with joy. The Lord's restoration will result in Judah's teeming with joy. We have now reached the high point of the chiasm. First, remember verse 21 starts with the land, then it moves to the animals, now it moves to Judah. In verse 23, we see the highest order of creation over the animals in the land. Well, I not the highest order on Earth, at least. All right, um, not referring to angelic beings, but in this passage of scripture, the highest order. Or land to animals to uh, the children of Zion. That is to say, Judah. They are called to rejoice and to be glad in the Lord your God. Rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God. There is a specific person that they are to be rejoicing in. Okay, not a situation, but in a person. The ascension that Joel creates leads me to believe that the high point of this passage is that God's people are to rejoice in Him. That's the high point. That is the whole focus of this point passage of scripture that we've taken a few weeks to go over. Rejoice in what God is doing, Judah. Judgment is over. Blessing is here and coming. God's favor and grace are upon you. Rejoice. Citizens of Judah are called the children of Zion. According to Psalm 87, God loves Zion. It is called the city of God, the city of David. And it's referring to Jerusalem children of Jerusalem, inhabitants of Jerusalem. In Joel, it is being used for a synonym for Judah. And it's there to remind God's people that God loves them and he loves this city. Judah is to rejoice and to be glad in the Lord their God. He's giving rain to vindicate them and to prove to them that they are in right covenant now with God and untold blessings are coming. Salvation and restoration are found In God, and when one attains that salvation, all right, a coming restoration is slated for us, and therefore we are to rejoice and be glad. And worship should take place now, and that worship should be directed towards God. And that is what is commanded of Judah. It's not like this is a suggestion, it is a command. Stop all the weeping that I formerly called you to and the fasting and the sorrow. Now is the time to celebrate in God. Your mourning has turned into dancing. Stop fasting, it's feasting time. Worship the Lord with the gifts that he gives you. That's what they formerly could not do in their sin and devastation and judgment. But rains have come and are coming. It's going to be a banner year of harvesting. Now let me ask you, if you've had no food for a long time, you had no money, no tangible blessings from God for several years due to recession or inflation or whatnot, and then all of a sudden God floods you with blessings, or at least he promised to, what would your reaction be? Frankly, it doesn't matter how you want to respond, the command to rejoice is issued. Do you you hear that? It's, It's not, I'm not up in the, I'm not up for it right now. I'm just not in the mood to rejoice. Garbage. You do what God tells you to do and you rejoice. You rejoice. Rejoice and be glad, Judah. That's a command. God is sending a lot of rain. He's done great things. It is as good as done. The down payment is the first rain. You've already received it. Be glad, Judah. Be glad in God. The threshing floor will be full. Rejoice in God, Judah. Wine and oil vats will overflow. Rejoice and be glad in God, Judah. God will restore the years that all these locusts have brought upon you, their devastation. Rejoice and be glad, Judah. You're going to eat and be satiated and satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord, Judah. God has dealt wondrously with you be glad Judah you will never again be put to shame rejoice Judah because you will never again be put to shame rejoice Judah God is in your midst rejoice and church I have to ask the question why do some of us struggle to rejoice in God I wish it weren't so our worship services ought to be marked by 100% of God's people rejoicing There should be a joyful seriousness because of what God has done for us, is doing for us, and is going to do for us. And what he has done for us is as good as done, those future blessings. It's so sure that the Apostle Paul, in Romans 8.30, says that God has glorified us. Do you know what that that word glorify means, to glorify us? It's talking about the future restoration when we have resurrection bodies and all desires of sin to sin are removed from us and we're fixed in a state of perfection. God has saved us. He's justified us. He is saving us. He's sanctifying us and removing the desire now to sin. But one day he's going to glorify us when Christ comes again. But the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.30 that we have been glorified. It's as good as done. God will not fail. Rejoice. Rejoice for what is coming. Paul speaks of it, just like Joel, as if it's already happened, even though it hasn't. Therefore, we have joyful respect and awe of God for not just physical provision, but for all his, also for his spiritual provisions. Rejoice. Rejoicing. That is the high point of this chiasm, what Joel is focusing on. It's what God really wants and desires of Judah right now because of his goodness. The good news is that the day of the Lord is upon them. That's good news because they have repented. The day of the Lord again is both salvation and judgment. They averted the judgment of God. And they're now experiencing salvation and blessing. The day of the Lord was formerly bad news for them. But now the day of the Lord is good news for them. They took God at his word. The pain was coming. If they didn't repent, they repented and they were saved. And now they are blessed and restored to God. Therefore, God is due praise and due worship and shouting and singing and adoration and rejoicing. And there is to be gladness in him. In church, in Christ, we have every reason to rejoice. The day of the Lord is coming. For us, that is good news. So rejoice. Rejoice, church. Your sins are forgiven. Rejoice, church, because you have been born again. Rejoice, church, because you have been declared righteous in God's eyes. Rejoice, church. Rejoice. God is crushing your desire to sin, even now, Rejoice, church. You are adopted into the family of God. You are to rejoice because your Savior is risen from the dead. Rejoice, church. A resurrection body is coming to you. Rejoice because a new creation, a real earth with animals, with a revived land, is coming along with a new heaven. Rejoice, church. He has given you His Spirit as the down payment for what He has done and for what is to come. Rejoice. One day you will never sin again. Rejoice. Those whom we've lost to death that are in Christ are coming back to life one day. Rejoice. Jesus, our treasure is coming to be with us. We get to dwell with God forever. Rejoice, church. To quote Paul in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. If you are not a Christian, I invite you to enter into this celebration with us that only happens when you come into God's family through Christ. If you believe that you are a sinner, then you need saving just like Judah needed saving. You believe and are to believe that only Jesus can take away your sin by taking your evil and putting it on his body so that when he died on the cross, he was suffering the penalty in the devastation and the hell that you deserve for sinning against God. In other words, like Judah, you have turned your back on God and you deserve hell, but Jesus took that hell upon himself by taking your wickedness upon himself. And if you believe that, that he suffered in your place and he died on a cross and that he rose again to vindicate and prove that he is God, judge, and savior... While everybody mocks him and laughs and says, your Jesus is just another human. He's a fraud. He's a lunatic. His resurrection vindicates who he is, and it vindicates that you are believing in the right person to save you, right? That's what a Christian is, and if you're not a Christian, I invite you to say, Jesus is my Savior. I believe that he died for me and that he rose again. In the resurrection, It's the linchpin of Christianity. If it didn't happen, everything else we believe is garbage. But if it did happen, and there's good historical reason to believe, and there's evidence to believe that it did happen, then you can trust that you are believing in the right person, that you will not be shamed on the day of judgment. And so I call upon you to repent like Judah, like God called him to. Repent, turn to God for salvation in Christ, and God will save you, and you will never be again put to shame. And you will never be without and a new creation is coming. And though things look a little shaky right now from time to time, God has done great things. They are as good as done. Now, recently I was reading a book, and I, I, don't, rec- I don't even recall what book it was. Um, there's a few that I'm going through right now. But the author was talking about rejoicing and how God designed rejoicing to be fully expressed when we enjoy something. Like when you enjoy food, like something that you've never tasted before, you're like, man, that is amazing. It, it is good to smile and taste and have your senses delighted. But that sense of rejoicing and delight is not fully expressed until you talk about it. Right? You're like, man, I gotta tell somebody about this. This is amazing. Or you see a really good movie and you're like, man, I, I want to talk about this. That, that delight is not finalized until you express it. How do you rejoice in God? Internally? No. It needs to come out. It needs to be expressed. You need to give voice to it. And you are not fully delighting in God unless you give voice to it. And if you can't give voice to it, I wonder what God you believe in. I wonder if you know the God of Scripture. If it's hard for you to praise God, do you know what He has done for you? Maybe you're not saved and you think you are a Christian. David was a fool before the Lord and he would become even more dignified than what he did as he danced before the Lord. Man, we should never be ashamed to worship the God who will make sure that we are not shamed on Judgment Day. Let us rejoice in God. We're going to sing a song here in a little bit. Rejoice in God. Praise God for the salvation. Praise him for the mercy and the grace that he has given you. And as we take communion, rejoice. Rejoice. The the broken bread, and we're going to take this in a second, the broken bread and, and, and and the juice is a reminder of what Christ did for us in suffering the curse from us. And scripture says that we do this until he comes again. And what happens when he comes again? restoration. Rejoice. Communion reminds us of what is yet to come, and it preaches to us that it's coming with Christ. Let us pray.